Hi, this is Elliot Slattery, COO of Achieve Behavioral Health Services, and this is the Cask Chasers Podcast. What's up, Cast Chasers? So as you probably know by now, this is our dry month, and uh, we've had a couple of cool episodes, some mocktails. Uh, we have some other cool people coming on in the whiskey alcohol world that, you know, have a different outlook on drinking and and what that means. Here's my pitch. I am a connoisseur of whiskey. I enjoy drinking. I like to have a beverage every now and again, and I'm assuming so do you. But that being said, we have to be careful. And the reason I take a dry month is because I prove, well, basically I proved to myself that I can go without it for a month. Um, It's more of a mental atonement, I guess is the right word. But it's also, it's also just kind of a kind of a, um, I don't know what the word is, like the, what was the ALS bucket challenge? What was that? Kind of one of those situations, just kind of a shout out to those that can't drink, struggle with alcohol or addiction or whatever. So I do what I can. And this is one of those things I do kind of like, uh, in ceremony. Um, but my guest today is not only a professional in the world of addiction, Um, Someone who himself has struggled with addiction, but also a very, very, very dear friend of mine. I've known Elliot for a very long time, and I consider him one of my closest friends in the world. He's a great human being, and he's just trying to make the world better one person at a time. Um, He also happens to be the COO of a company, and when I met him, well, he was not a COO of anything, um, but who really was? (laughs) Elliot, buddy, welcome. Welcome to my my show about alcohol <laughs> i love it i told a bunch of my friends i was going to be on this show today and they're hyped um that's awesome that's awesome you know because most of my friends were once connoisseurs of some form of alcohol or other substance so they're always hype about things like this that's good so There's so many places to start, and I've heard a lot of your stories, but the listeners haven't, and um, and literally, I could put a pin anywhere and and kick it off, and it would be a great story. But do you feel? And I know you do because you're an open book. Can you tell us about your addiction? Kind of give us some stories, some of your, you know, your lowest moments. Really, just really just open up, you know, share something that you wouldn't share with anybody. No, just don't do that. It's a lot of people listening. But, uh, <laughs> don't make anyone uncomfortable, but uh, kind of share where you're at so we can know where you're at, where you started and where you're at now. Yeah. So um, maybe we'll start like a little bit at the beginning. So I grew up in Newcastle, Delaware in like a family that was pretty poor, right? Um, both my parents struggle with addiction I grew up not wanting to be anything like them. I started a punk band when I was about 14. Um, I was straight edge. 
when I was 16, we ended up playing a show at this place called the ground floor in Newark, Delaware, right by the college campus. And I was talking to a girl at the show and she was in the university of Delaware girls dorms. We went back to her place. She offered me grain alcohol. That's a story. I had never, I had never drank before. Um, I'm six, three, I was kind of a big guy. So she gave me a double shot glass thinking I could handle it. And I started drinking and was like, Hey, I love this. Mm. So kind of all bets were off on my straight edge game. And then I started openly drinking. I mean, grain at the time I'm 16, but back then when you were in a band, especially if the other members were older than you, nobody really asked many questions. Mm. So the drinking kind of kicked off. Now, I didn't think there was a problem. There, there definitely probably wasn't even a problem then. You know, it was just uh, conviviality. It was about friendship. It was social life. It went hand in hand with the punk rock scene. It was all normal as far as I could tell. Um, the story begins to spin around age 20. My mom passed away. And I would say something that is pretty common in most people who struggle with alcoholism or addiction of any kind is there's normally some kind of traumatic event that like spins off um, the vicious cycle, the daily drinking, the perpetual drunkenness phase or whatever it might be. And I can identify being 20 years old um, my mom passing away, me not being able to handle it too well, and pretty much trying to stay as drunk as I can to not have to think about it. Um, there was a definite conscious thought that this is how I'm going to deal with my problem. Mm. So that's like a little bit of that part. Um, I can even say, too, I kind of got it back together after about a year um, it was somewhere in that time span, me and you met, um, and I was getting my life back together a bit. Um, I was doing what I was supposed to do. I was in school for criminal justice. Um, life was looking like I was going to build it up at the time, you know, and I don't know what happened really, you know, like the fact that my dad kind of was, he was like, um, a larger than life figure, you know, he was a Vietnam veteran. He got back from Vietnam. He, um, kind of started getting involved in some criminal activity. I looked up to him a lot by the time all this stuff has gone down. He's very much in his lifestyle and his lifestyle wasn't horrible. It was movie like, you know, like when you see some kind of almost like fear and loathing. Like he just did whatever he wanted when he wanted to do it. And it seemed cool, you know? So my dad was around at the time, me and him um, were best friends and somewhere around 21, 22, I thought I want to be more like my dad than I want to actually be a normal person in society. And that gave me permission to keep drinking and, partaking in other substances. So that's kind of when the twist occurred. It was another conscious thought, you know, if I could do this, 
why would I want to work 40 hours a week every week for the rest of my life? You know, that was kind of the thought that came to mind. I mean, who would? Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? I knew your dad and I, I liked your dad, you know, him and I chatted a few times and he was a fun guy, but you know, at, at the time I knew you and your dad and you, you and I actually worked together. Um, loss prevention security. Uh, <laughs> what a wild west time that was. Um, but you know, we were both kind of going through our things, but we were, and I think this is what I see more than just a rock bottom or, you know, your classic, you know, I don't want to be derogatory or anything, but just your rock bottom person. I think what I normally see is your functioning, you know, a d- addict or your functioning person that just has whatever weighing on them. We had a great time. We laughed a lot. We hung out a lot, but we were both going through it, whatever it may be. Kind of talk. Can you talk a little bit about the? I don't want to say the dangers of, but the functioning piece of it. The the going to work, but then the all that that kind of shadow in the corner at all times. You know what I mean? Yeah, I could tell you how that kind of started. So I remember, um, I always liked to drink. Don't get me wrong. It's not like when I was getting it back together, it's not like the drinking stopped. It was more like I had control over the drinking. And then at some point you lose control, right? So I remember around the time we were working together, I'd come home. I'd do some things around the house. I do chores, errands, play some music, whatever. At about eight o'clock every night, I gave myself permission to drink a little, you know? I wasn't hung over every day, anything mm. like that. I drink a bit, take the edge off, go to sleep, wake up, go to work, do that kind of thing. I think as I began to make the conscious decision that I wanted to live a lifestyle more like my dad, mm. I started giving myself more permission to drink whenever. And at first it was like, it went from 8 p.m. to 7 p.m. to 6 to it's 5 o'clock somewhere, you know, to... All my days off, I could drink whenever I want. Lots of day drinking, uh, lots of blacking out midday, passing out, waking up, going out to the bar, drinking more, passing out. You know, I looked at it, too, at the time, like, oh, this is just me having fun in my youth. You know, I most of the people I knew were living that way, too. Um, and we were just having fun. I think what happened was. As everybody else's life started straightening out, people were getting married, having kids, finishing college, getting careers, all that stuff. It seemed like they just stopped. And I was kind of spinning in the same cycle indefinitely. Um, It didn't take long, about a year or two after we stopped working together. um, When I found myself unable to actually function like I was. Um, But then again, the lifestyle I was participating in with my dad, which involved making money in very questionable ways. um, It it was like hindering my ability to do what I wanted Um, in, in the sense that I was making money I was paying the bills. I was doing everything I was supposed to do. But when you live that lifestyle for a period of time, 
you almost become afraid to go out to be seen, whatever. I kind of knew subconsciously that I was a mess and I didn't want people to see me as that mess. My band was still playing some shows. We reunited. Um, I started getting kicked out of venues for being too blacked out playing. Um, I got kicked out of a lot of venues for fighting. It was, um, I was living in a dream world. You know what I mean? Where I hear, where I, couldn't yeah. I hear this kind of common theme and you're kind of speaking to it too. It's almost like there's this moment where you, you kind of justify it as you go. You're like, okay, my dad's doing it. He's an awesome guy. Okay, I'm in my 20s. It's expected. I'm in the punk scene. It's expected. I can I can do this on my day off because I have no responsibilities. Just be good for work. Where's that bridge from, you know, this is okay to, oh, fuck, I went too far. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, so somewhere around the time I was 24-ish, maybe 25, um... I stopped being able to function hardly at all. My mindset went from like, oh, I drink to have fun and do other things to have fun to like drinking is almost a part of my daily life. Like some people would look at work or some people look at being responsible to their home, their families. Drinking was my primary purpose. Mm. Um, it was it was just the thing I did, you know? Um, and somewhere around that time, my whole life began to revolve around how can I drink and keep getting away with it in the sense, like I wouldn't drive often. I would just stay at home. I wouldn't go out. So I wouldn't get in trouble with the bars and stuff. I almost became a recluse, like very isolated, um, to just maintain the way I wanted to drink. And that's when the bottom started coming. Now I will say this for me, alcohol was my drug of choice, right? DOC drug of choice. That's like a common term in the recovery scene and the addiction field. Um, Alcohol was always that for me. What happened to me was I was drinking so much. I would have intense stomach pains. I'd be vomiting daily, stuff like that. And uh, one day when my stomach was hurting really bad, I took an opiate. And I thought to myself, hey, this makes me feel better. I get a buzz off of it. Maybe I could just start doing this mm. and I won't have to drink so much. That was the first conscious thought of why I began doing opiates. And once I started doing opiates, you know, like the sky was the limit, you know, and uh, eventually I ended up doing harder substances, tried heroin like that. Um, then the extreme depression, suicidal thoughts started coming because if that's how low I went, um, I didn't even think I deserved life at that point in time that makes me want to again i love you so much and you're such a good friend of mine that little comment right there made my eyes start to i and i'm not gonna and people say this all the time and it's not a it's not something you say to somebody going through something to get them out of it because it doesn't but 
I would, what a shit world without my buddy Elliot in it. And that's immediately what I just thought. And I'm, I'm picturing you going down this spiral and I kind of, I kind of beat my, like, you know, we went through a phase where we were in and out of each other's lives, but it's like, man, if I lost you, I think I'd had this poor point. My, I think I'd believe maybe if I was there, I let him down, you know what I mean? But I guess it's kind of your own journey, right? I mean, it, it but let's let's chat a little bit about going from I don't want to skip ahead too far because I really want to get more of your story. But that kind of rock bottom, you're in opiates now, which is super dangerous. Um, alcohol is dangerous. And but there's a point when you start to step into recovery. No. Is there a is there something somebody said? Is there something somebody did something or is it just kind of like your own? OK, I'm ready. Can You can't make somebody be okay right you know what I mean yeah it's tricky so for me it was kind of interesting um like I said once I started using heroin I really was kind of at my rope's end I thought about dying every day as a Mm. means of escape I overdosed a bunch ended up hospitalized a lot um the same hospital you know the same town I used in And I'm gone there often and a doctor pops in my room and she goes, Mr. Slattery, you have alcoholism. And I was like, I'm here because I overdosed on heroin, you know, and she's like, you you have alcoholism. It's a disease. Mm. And at the time, I just didn't believe that alcoholism was a disease. Who wants to believe that? That's crazy to me. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Um, It was anyway. And I was like, you're wrong. You know, I'm like suicidal. I have extreme depression. I treat it with heroin. That's what's wrong with me. I don't have some made up disease. And when she said that, it kind of stuck with me. And I started looking at the people I was hanging out with and stuff like that. We were all very similar. We all used hardcore substances. We're all like in and out of extreme destitution and homelessness and stuff like that. We were not doing too good. So I began to look at them and I began to look at other people in the world. And I was like, maybe we are different. You know, maybe something is up with how we're dealing with life. And then, so I overdosed again, ended up in the same hospital. They put me on the behavioral health unit. Um, and my overdose was an attempted suicide. And there was this woman who had to sit with me for the first 24 hours I was there. They call them like a crisis watch. And she said, I was 26 at the time. I thought I was old. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Now I know that I wasn't old at all, (laughs) but um, she goes, you have the rest of your life. If you straighten out now, like imagine what you could do with your life. And I was like, whoa. And she kind of knew where I live. She knew who my dad was. You know, I had been talking about it while I was in there. She was like, you don't have to be like your family, you know? And when I was 20, my mom died of an overdose, Mm -hmm. you know? My dad, it was very much looking like the same could happen to him, which eventually it did. Um, and she kind of gave me this hope that 
if I left it all behind and tried to do something new with my life, maybe I could straighten out enough to have some kind of success in this world or some kind of experience with this world or achieve something more than the things I thought was possible for me, which at the time seemed like only death and continuing to live how I was living. That was like the extent of the hope I had in my life is like, maybe I'll die or I'll just keep being a junkie essentially. And, um, and yeah. And then what happened was at the BHU, a bed opened up at a treatment center I didn't have any money. I, I didn't even have Medicaid. I had no insurance at all. And this scholarship bed at a treatment center opened up. And I remembered what that woman said. I remember what the doctor said. And I thought to myself, okay, let me go see if alcoholism is really a disease. Mm. And that was my thought. So I went. I was. They put me in a taxi, <laughs> sent me off to this treatment center. I had never been to anything like that before. Um, and yeah, that was kind of the beginning of this new phase of my life. I'll say this, you, you, you're still great, but you were way funnier back then, but maybe that's, so there, you know, there's these little positives. No, you're still funny. I'm kidding. There's these, (laughs) there's these, there's these moments that, you know, drunk people are fun. Drug, you know, drugs are fun. They feel good. Alcohol being drunk feels good but it becomes super dangerous and it, it attaches itself to you. And like you said, it kind of, it kind of becomes an out for a lot of people or a numbing or a medication or whatever you, I'm going to generalize. And if I'm totally wrong, stop me. But in the, in that population addicts specifically, and I've, I myself have worked in behavioral health. Um, Addicts seem to be super, there's this weird super intelligence. You know what I mean? These aren't dumb people for the most part is what it seems like. You're, I mean, you're, you're a very intelligent human being. So it's not a matter of I don't know better. It seems like it's, it, that's what scares me about it. Because it's, it can, it's something that can take anybody. It's, it's not a dumb person. It's not necessarily a poor person. You know, I would work in the hospital and the behavioral health section and there would be a teacher, a lawyer, some kid from the streets, a mom, you know, it was a, it was, there's almost no, there's no racism. There's no bigotry. There's no, there's no, you know, alcoholism addiction is a very, you know, inclusive disease. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think what it is too, I think most human beings are good at adapting to their strengths and kind of negating their weaknesses, right? And I think most alcoholics or people struggling with substance use disorder, um, we adapt to the fact that either no one can know or I have to be very cautious of who knows that I do these things, Right. So in a way, there's like this intellectual way of disguising that. And it goes across the board, you know, from like who you trust when you are a low bottom or who you trust when you're a high bottom and how you function, um, which are the the teachers who hold their jobs, doctors, lawyers. I mean, I've seen it all. I've seen Princeton grads. I've seen politicians. I've seen 
a lot of different people um, struggle with this thing that have came across my path. And, you know, everyone has a different way of doing it, but it definitely does not discriminate. Um, alcoholism and substance use disorder, it can happen to anybody. And there's a lot of interesting theories. There's the thought that it's like a familial thing where it's like genetically it runs in your system. There's um, the person in like rooms of 12 step fellowships that'll say, um, we can't ask ourselves why we have alcoholism. We have to just accept that we do mm. and do what it takes to actually get better. I'm prone to like that way of thinking the, because the more we try to analyze why mm. we could fall down a rabbit hole. Now, these days, I'm kind of a blend of that where I do personally believe there is a trauma involved in some capacity with most people who struggle with alcoholism or substance use disorder. So I do believe it's important to identify those traumas to like help with therapy and the things we need when we're on this side of the fence. Um, but I also know for myself too, I recognized that anytime I put a substance or anything in my body, I enjoyed it a lot. Mm. And so I have to remind myself also just because I'm aware that there was traumas involved in what made me spiral. I have to remember that I have lost the right for myself personally to drink or use any substances again. And also where I found myself in life today, um, I wouldn't want to do any of that. Mm. You know, mm. I, I, I have full intention of remaining dry not using any substances for the rest of my life at this point. So, yeah, that's that's powerful. <laughs> you know how lucky I am. Oh, you are so lucky. I know being married to you. That's number one, right? That's no joke, babe. It's no joke, and and I'm going to tell you why. Aside from being married to you, my two favorite independent bottlers mm -hmm. happen to be in the Imparks portfolio. What luck. I know. We've got Adelphi Selections. Yeah. Bottler started in 1993, I want to say. Okay. And Single Malts of Scotland. Yeah. Who those casts are selected by my good friend, Ollie Chilton. I know Ollie. You know Ollie. Yeah. Yeah, he came to drink with us. Uh-huh. So back to the idea of drinking off the beaten path. Oh, this again. If you are looking for a wide array of flavors, going after independently bottled whiskey is where it's at because- their idea is never to repeat a flavor. Never? Never to repeat a flavor. Well. Always bottle something new, always something different, and more importantly, always something delicious mm -hmm. and something that won't steal all of your wallet. Okay. That's I like that part. You like that. I knew you'd yeah. like that part. So listen, Haida, I have to tell you, and I have to tell our listeners here, Impex Beverages. Yes. Proud sponsor of Cast Chasers Podcast. Excellent. <laughs> Do, are there, this is a loaded question, I guess, and maybe there's no answer. Are there signs that people can look for? Can, well, first off, let's say this. How would one self-inventory? I mean, how can yeah. you, how could somebody, because listen, I, I have a whiskey podcast. I talk to a lot of people. I have a pretty good size audience and I find I'm, in, I'm engulfed in this world and 99.9% .9 of what I do is say, here's a whiskey 
enjoy this. But I have to remember there's that fraction of people that may struggle struggle, and that are listening to this right now. And some are going, you know, I drink every night. I have no problem. Maybe they're at that phase. But how would one self-inventory? How would one self-identify? And maybe what are, are there some boxes they can start to check? And are there some things like, are there things they can do in their life to say, whoa, 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 maybe I should take a pump the brakes a little bit? Yeah. I love that question. It makes me think a lot. So this is kind of um, taking my professional who works in substance use disorder hat off. I'm putting on my Elliot Slattery personal opinion hat on, you that. know, and uh, I have thought about this for myself, especially in early in my recovery. I thought, when did it start actually happening, right? And the first box I can check is that other people in my life around 2021 started telling me that I had a drinking problem and I laughed them off. I was like, you're crazy. We're drinking together. You know what I mean? You're here, dude. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You're here drinking with me. But then when I have a flash, those memories back, I'd have seven empty beer glasses stacked on top of each other to their two at the bar, you know? And then when we left the bar, I would drink at home or I would pregame before I even left for the bar so that I didn't have to spend as much money at the bar to get (laughs) to Mm. feeling how I wanted to feel. You know what I mean? So, so I think number one, we have to listen to the people closest to us. If somebody's saying anything that's like, hey, this is affecting your life, that might be a good sign that something's going on. Mm. Also, I think, too, um, we start to change the way we do things to fit the way we drink. Mm. So, for example, there's and this is just me spitballing, but like if there's a teacher who's an alcoholic, let's say, which I've seen a couple, they might get wasted drunk one night, have a hangover in the morning, go into school, you know, like be nipping a little bit before they go in, like take a a drink or something to like even take the edge off. They might be super hungover at school. They're like, Oh, I come alive after 12 or something, you know, after 1 PM, I start coming back. Um, they curb everything, you know, maybe like they have to do things to be more presentable in the workplace. Right. Um, maybe they even have a couple slip ups where, and and this isn't the teacher anymore. This is just anybody where they go into work and somebody says, man, you smell like booze or man, you look hung over or whatever, but it's a professional setting has happened happening often. Right. Mm. Maybe you have a professional job and you say, Hey, I don't like this job anymore. I'm going to go do something completely outside of the box of what I've ever done. And the reason that we're thinking of doing that is because no one there will care Mm. what my life looks like. You know, like these are things I've seen happen. Um, If you start thinking to yourself things like, I can't wait to be done this so I could drink how I want to drink, like meaning an activity you know, kids birthday party, you know, exactly. And you're like, man, Um, where's the booze? 
Yeah, congratulations, Jimmy. You're seven years old today, but at exactly 3 p.m. when these people leave, I'm getting blitzed, you know? Uh, Stuff like that happens for sure, but it's really about taking a reflection of your life. Have people been telling me I'm drinking too much? That's a big one. Have I made a spectacle of myself in public, you know? Am I changing my behaviors at work because of all the things that I'm doing when I'm not there, you know, like those kind of things. I I think that's, first of all, that's super powerful and I'll admit something and I'm thankful to have an amazing wife, Dana, but you know, one of the reasons we do the dry month, typically up into it, it almost, you know, she'll tell me, you know, I'll come home and have two or three every night and she'll say, you know, you're, you've been drinking a lot lately. That that's something that's said every now and again, and I immediately get defensive, you know, and I'm kind of like, you know, get off me. I'm fine. But in reality, I think about it. Once it's said to me, it, it kind of sits on me and I'm like, all right, maybe she's, maybe I'll just do one. And then we go into the dry month. And the first thing I think every time we would do a dry month is fuck. But the dry month, I come out the other end. I feel amazing. I feel great. I feel not physically because I really, and I'm not just saying this because I'm, you know, in denial. I don't, I'm not an alcoholic cause I don't, I don't need it. It's, it's, you know, I can go a week or whatever. That's just something an alcoholic would say. Um, <laughs> but, um, but I feel okay. I'm fine. I don't, you know, I'm not, um, I drink a lot of these bubbly waters and I pee a lot, but, uh, you know, I think I have some kind of oral thing, I guess. I don't know. Listeners take that for whatever that, that, that little sound bite. It's a freebie, <laughs> but, uh, but, um, but no, but I, I, I want people listening to, cause we're in that room and we may have that friend or family member that we see and we're thinking, you know, you know, when people come see my whiskey collection, I have hundreds of bottles and people that don't know are like, you got a problem, but you may have somebody in your life that you're like, Okay, we do drink together. We have whiskey together. You've gotta, you've gotta, you gotta get it together. There was a, um, there's a person in the whiskey world. I'm not gonna say their name or tag because you know this or that's for their personal. But they were a pretty big figure in the whiskey industry and in the whiskey media, kind of this thing, social media. And they recently just quit because they felt it was it was overcoming them, and they, they dropped their whole platform. It's gone. And it's a shame because, you know, one side of it was a very interesting, very informative, very smart human being, but I'm happy for him because he made a choice. He took something out of his life that was huge because of his health and his better being. So off, let's, let's switch gears, not switch gears, but let's, let's jump onto, I'm, I'm curious about a subject right now. So as far as addictions concern, I commonly hear, and I've been taught that alcohol specifically is the most dangerous addiction. Why? Yeah. Why? Yeah. So not to scare alcohol, anybody. I'm going to lose all listeners. And like, I'm going <laughs> to happily lose some listeners. Fuck him. He don't know what he's talking about. I assume that's what that person sounds like. No offense to him. I'm from the South, so I can say that. that's our word. I can say that. <laughs> um. So yeah. So alcohol is actually one of the only substances. Alcohol and benzos, which benzo is like Xanax, Ativan, et cetera. Um, But alcohol's withdrawal, if you drink continuously and a lot, 
the withdrawal from alcohol can kill you. Mm. That's powerful. That's crazy. Yeah. Yep. Um, it wow. can cause extreme hallucinations, hallucination. It can cause extreme dehydration. It can destroy the liver seizures, convulsions, stuff like that. And there's people who drink like I've seen people come into treatment in wheelchairs. And when they do 30 days, they leave walking regular. And I've seen those same people come in time and time again in wheelchairs, leave walking normal and come back again and do the same thing. They see it as like a drying out, like, oh, I ended up in a wheelchair again, better go dry out. And so I could go back and drink how I like to drink, you know, you would not recommend um, that. Yeah, yeah, no, no. It, that was an interesting one. It so, calls wet brain. Yeah. Talk about wet brain real quick. That's an interesting one. I mean, the physicality of a wet brain, you can hear them when they talk. You can hear the slur. They're like, they're like perpetually drunk sounding. It's, it's yeah, scary. And, and it's almost could be like uh, Alzheimer's or dementia. It has the same qualities. You know, you lose a piece of yourself. You don't, you don't come back from that. Um, yeah, it, it's very rare, if at all, somebody with wet brain actually gets better. Mm. So it's a very dangerous place to be. So what does recovery look like for an alcoholic then? Because, I mean, you can't stop, right? Or you can. It's just. Right. So you brought up a really good point in talking about your friend um, who who was very popular in the whiskey world. The guy who kind of like identified his own problem and stopped. Mm. There are multiple pathways that I've seen people just stop. Right. One is. The person who's good at self-reflecting catches it when they can. They stop. They change their life, behaviors, everything, because they identify the problem early. Then there's people like me. I fall into this category. I was in a heavy delusion. Most of my drinking and substance use disorder days, I, I couldn't hear what other people had to say to me. I couldn't see my life falling apart. Um, all that I did was protect my ability to drink and use how I wanted to. And eventually it took kind of like a come to Jesus moment with the doctor and the people in the hospital after overdosing a bunch, kind of um, convincing me I had a problem. There's people who maybe their wife or husband or somebody brings them to church they have a spiritual experience that way, recognize the issues in their life and get better. You know, there's uh, I fall into this category too. the person who gets forced into treatment, essentially learns about what alcoholism and substance use disorder really are, identifies so strongly with it that they can't ever go back to not knowing that they have it. And then it either eats at them over time until they do get better or they get better as a result of being educated on what they suffer from. There's, there's a lot of different methods that stuff has happened. There's 12 step fellowships. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people get court ordered or a loved one kind of convinces them to go to one of those. They hear something they identify with and think to themselves, okay, maybe I do have this thing they're talking about in here. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so many ways. What about if you're the person who is, you know, that's your loved one, the person you care about, 
there's two sides. I the, one of the when I, again when I worked in behavioral health, I would do counseling for people with people, and it wasn't always the addict. It was sometimes the person involved with the addict, and their biggest struggle was I've tried everything, I've said everything. And now I feel like I have to step away, but the guilt of if I step away and they don't get recovery. And one of the things I used to tell those people is it's, it's not you, if you've done everything you can, which is verbal, I mean, you can't, I don't think you can put them in a basement and chain them up. Although I've heard that might be a, but if you've done everything, you know, legally and humanly possible, it's okay to, you know, you might have to step away and hope to God that they, that they find that recovery and they get there. So you let's, I guess, God, there's so much I want to talk to you about. You're just, you know what I mean? But well, uh, let's talk about what you were just saying. So yeah. Okay. The there we go. Who's, who's Take over the show. With their loved one <laughs> with the person who's like trying to support their loved one or whatever. There are a couple things you could do. I can't like, I couldn't suggest enough the idea of interventions, right? Especially for the, common American family, right? You the, mean like, when you say interventions, um, you mean like, every time I walk into a room and there's people sitting, I get a little, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and then they're just like, it's Christmas, time, you're fine. I'm like, okay. Every time you're about to do a cast chasers <laughs> podcast, you walk into the room of like three or four people, you're like, today's the day. <laughs> they're going to say it. They're all going to put out letters. <laughs> yeah, um... So yeah, intervention can look like a lot of different things these days. Um, but the classic intervention show essentially does end up being um, a popular way of doing it. It's almost like getting, they say, five close, like five loved ones together to identify together that there's an issue with this person. The interventionist wants to gather as much information they can so they can see it from all angles of what the loved ones are seeing to see how to identify that. Interventionists also help with boundary setting, like what you were talking about. Like you have to kind of let them have their own experience. I, I think for stuff like that, when it gets to that point for a family member, I think it's very important they either go to their own therapy, um, start getting their own support because substance use disorder and alcoholism um, can affect the loved one just as much as it's mm. affecting the person experiencing it. And the loved one needs help for themselves as well mm. to stay mentally protected. Um, and so an intervention is kind of helps a good one anyway, helps with the total package of what all that looks like. Now there's a bunch of different methods of intervention too. There's the interventionist who like comes to the house and just talks one-on-one -on -one with the individual to kind of educate them. There's that. There's also a lot of local family support groups. I mean, especially where we live in Maryland, um, there's different agencies and stuff that, that can help with all of those things um, and get you plugged in with other people who have had the same experience so you can hear what they've done and kind of learn from everybody else. So, yeah, I love yeah, that. I'm a big fan of that. Yeah. So talk a little bit about the company you work for, you know, how you got in, what you do, what your role is. Um, yeah. Yeah. How much you make. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um w2 yeah uh so um yeah so i got sober 10 years ago um a little 
over 10 years ago. It was December 15, 2012. That's my sobriety date, right? Um, I got sober. I had no clue about life. I, I had gone so far down. It had been a while since I held a job, since anything normal was going on in my life. I forgot how to do mundane day-to-day tasks. Like, how do I clean up after myself? How do I do any of that, right? So when I got sober, I remember really worrying about what my new place in the world was going to be. But when I got into recovery and I started identifying with the people around me um, in 12-step meetings, I went to a sober living too. um, And I related with those people so much that it almost felt like I had found the family I was supposed to be a part of. Now, that might sound culty, which I'm not not a fan of that. Yeah, right. um, (laughs) We love a good cult. I love a good call. Um, and uh, so I, I kind of identify with them was like, man, these are the people I was supposed to be around the whole time. It's like when you drink and use the way I do, it's like I always found people out there who drank and used the way I did. And on this side, I found them, but we were all striving for purpose in our life, you know, and to figure out what life means for people like us. And I kind of fell in love with that. So at about a year sober, which is normally the recommended time to work in treatment, I started working in treatment and I fell in love with it. I felt like there was nothing else in this world I was supposed to do. I mean, I came from a family of addicts. My mom and died of an overdose. My dad was still out there using. I was uniquely molded to be able to identify with all different levels of substance use disorder, you know, with anybody who came through, I normally had some tangible piece of my life that I could identify with, um, in their life. So, so at a year sober, I start working in treatment and around that same time, I realized this is what I'm supposed to do. So time went on, I kept working in treatment at about three years sober. I went to the world convention, um, for, Alcoholics Anonymous, right? There I met. So A is kind of funny because you think of it like these little secret groups in church basements. But the truth is there's like very popular people in these things and you know who they are. So at this convention, I met a guy who's a very popular person in recovery. And he asked me to work for him in South Florida. And he was like a hero of mine. I was like, you got it, bud. Mm -hmm. So at about three years sober, a guy who had never left Delaware, Maryland, Pennsylvania, moves to Florida, just packs up my car, goes to Florida to teach recovery of literature at a treatment center. Um, and, and from there, I kind of began to work in every area of substance use disorder you could think. I did case management. I did 12-step education, group facilitator. I was part of an alumni program, which a lot of good treatment centers, they have alumni programs where like, Alumni talk to each other, help hold each other accountable, kind of like use each other as tools. Um, I then became program director of an adolescent facility, then director of operations of an adolescent facility. I went back to school for theology. Um, And then when my degree ended, I really wanted to move back to Maryland where I first got sober. It kind of always been in my heart to do so. So I moved back with a degree, a lot of experience, stuff like that. And I got into the outreach side of treatment, which is pretty much getting to know all the other facilities, 
um, what sober livings exist. I then started doing it on a national level, got to know the landscape of all of America. And so while doing that, a, a place came to me and said, we want you to be a co-founder and help create a treatment center, essentially. At the time, I'm very happy with my life. Mm -hmm. I wasn't crisis or anything. I, I was very comfortable. Um, and, and they wanted to do it for the Medicaid population, which Medicaid essentially is state insurance. Mm -hmm. It's, it's essentially what I should have had when I got sober, right? Because I had no job. I had nothing going on in my life. And I think, um, across the country, what you'll see is Medicaid facilities. They don't, there's a difference between having private insurance and going to treatment and having Medicaid and going to treatment. And it's normally a pretty drastic difference. Mm -hmm. So these people came to me and they were like, here's what we want to do for the Medicaid population. We want this place to look as if they're going to a high-end private insurance facility. And we want to do this absolutely right. And we feel like we're able to. And I thought about it for about three months. I was like, man, is this possible? I crunched the numbers. I did a lot of stuff. It seems like this has been possible the whole entire time, but people just haven't been doing it. I don't, I don't know why, you know? So I came at them and I was like, okay, here's the first thing I want to do. The person who's normally paid the least, which is the guy with the year or two of recovery who wants to go in and work in treatment and help other people normally gets a short end of the stick. They get paid very little. Um, but they do it because their heart wants to give back in some capacity. So I said, the first thing I want us to be able to do is pay those people what they deserve, right? I want to raise the bar of what the lowest paid person in treatment center setting, the person who spends the most time with the patients, I want to raise what they're making. They said, done. I said, okay, second thing I want to do, I would like us to actually get therapists with experience who understand trauma, understand substance use disorder. And I want to offer them a little more than whatever they're making at the private insurance treatment centers that they're coming from. They said, okay, consider it done. Wow. And then I was like, okay, I'll take the job. <laughs> it, it required them to tell me they were going to do that. And then I was like, if we can do that, then we are going to make a best in class treatment center for the Medicaid population. So, so that's kind of when I joined wow. the team over at Achieve, and um, and yeah, we open tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow we accept patients. <laughs> I know, man. I'm I'm so proud of you, which is a weird thing to say to a friend, but I am. I'm. I look up to you. I think. I think you're. You're. You're a true. You're a real beacon of light. People say that, but you really are. And I think having background, having a rocky background gives you more credibility. And I think people sometimes are ashamed of it or whatever, but don't be because, I mean, look at you. I mean, I knew you through most of the, I, I was there when your father died. I was there when you were somewhere in your, you know, swimming down towards the bottom of rock bottom. I wasn't there for rock bottom, but I was somewhere in the water with you. Um, we've worked together. We've remained, we, we've remained, you didn't become a different person. You just became 
a person that I remembered the, the most fondly in, in, in moments, you know, you're happy, you're fun, you're funny, you're caring, you have a lot of love in your heart and you're just doing something really cool and amazing. Um, and I couldn't, I couldn't think of a better friend. Um, so anyway, that's my sappy piece. Where, where can people find you if they have questions? Where can they find your organization? It's your opening tomorrow. So anybody in this area, but you, like you said before, you, you're pretty familiar with the United States and treatment. I'm, I have a global listenership, but a lot of people in the U S so can people reach out to you, find you, hit you up, ask you questions where, where are those places? Yeah. So I'm just going to put my phone number on blast because that's how I prefer to be reached out to it's a but, lot of people. You know, somebody I'm in, fine with it. Somebody in Czechoslovakia is going to hit you up. <laughs> it already happens. <laughs> oddly, but, uh, yeah. So uh, my phone number is 410-776-4421 or you can go on achieve BHS. That's boy, Henry, Sally, dot org yeah or you can look me up on social media or whatever elliot slattery um i'm normally asking for things for new guys in recovery on there so if you have couches and stuff to give some guys moving out of sober living you'll see a lot of that on my social media um yeah and i always think of you fondly i do think you're one of those people for me that's always in the back of my mind and just i have the most fond memories of like my early twenties with you, you know? Um, yeah. When we worked together, it was like not even working at all. Yeah. It was like the thing I was looking forward to the most every day. <laughs> but now we're grown so, ups, but we can still have fun. We'll just get coffee. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I stay, I stay with coffee on deck. Yeah, for sure. Good man. Well, Elliot, thank you so much for coming on my show and chatting about this. Um, somewhat uncomfortable conversation for some people, you know, but again, and I want to end it with this. If you're listening, you know, there's help out there. Recognize if you're struggling, sometimes just put that bottle down. If you follow me on cat cast chasers, you know, we have a team that, that runs that social media hit us up. Um, you know, we're here. If we can't talk, we'll find somebody that can, if you're in this world and you're drinking and you love whiskey and it's not a problem, do something bigger than yourself. Volunteer, find a group you can be a part of. Like Elliot said, people need beds, people need food, people need, you know, the homeless population right now is is a, is a thing. And a lot of them, I would assume, are addicts and they need you and they're going through it. And I'm telling you right now, here is a human being that went through it. He's been down that road and look how he turned out be the reason somebody else becomes something becomes an elliot and then um help them be there for them love your neighbor elliot thank you so much man i appreciate you thanks bobby all right buddy boy. love you love you too bye bye bye